right, opening our Bibles to Romans chapter 9. I was listening to a prominent, experienced, retired preacher, and, and he said something that just, oh, I could resonate in so much. He said that every class he has ever taught, and he used to teach at a Bible college, and then he became a pastor of a church, this issue that we're going to discuss today comes up. And I could immediately resonate with that. Every single class I have ever taught, no matter what the subject was, this comes up. And it came up at men's group this week. And I'm thankful for it. Every Christian has to process through what we're going to be talking about today. It's a natural, normal part of learning more about God. And so I really resonated with what he said. And he said that when this particular question we're going to wrestle with today comes up, we go to Romans chapter 9 to explain it. And so therefore, Romans chapter 9 raises certain particular questions in the minds of most Christians. If if you're thinking, this is going to come upon your mind. So... We tend to see Romans chapter 9 and use 9 to discuss and analyze and uh, inform and argue and try to convince other people that our position is right. And when we do that, and I've done it hundreds of times, and I'm not saying it was all bad. It was, some of it I hope was good because it was, I hope some of it was true. But the problem is, when we're doing that, we may miss the whole point of Romans chapter 9. And that's what I've been just wrestling with, trying to understand. Why did Paul write this to that church? Why did God inspire him to write this to that church in Rome in the first century? Always remembering, as we've been reminded, that this is a letter to a church to accomplish some purpose in that church. And it functions that way in all churches for the rest of human history. So that's what we're going to be just digging for. Why Romans chapter 9? And as I studied and wrestled, and Kim and I talked at length throughout the week, as I did that, and I, and I was honing in toward the end of the week, praying about it, Lord, why chapter 9? Why is Paul writing this? I know what he's kind of saying, but... Why? And I just started reading Romans chapter 8, and I read the whole thing in its context a while, and I just kept reading and reading, and all of a sudden I came to the end of Romans chapter 8, and I knew why. The reason he wrote chapter 9 is because of chapter 8, and that because of 7 and 6, and the whole letter. It all flows together, and think about what he has taught us in Romans. Very quick recap. At the beginning... He makes it crystal clear because he's writing to a church in Rome that is filled with Jews and Gentiles coming from completely different backgrounds. And he's primarily concerned about the division that it may be causing in that church because of misunderstandings of what the gospel is, what the Christian is, who are the people of God. And the Jews thought they were. And so I'll come back to that in just a moment. So he makes it clear. He just starts at the beginning. 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody's a sinner. Nobody has an excuse. Nobody is saved by obeying the law because nobody has ever done it. And so he goes through, and we studied for several weeks, the essence of the gospel. What is the gospel message? What is the truth at the center of that saving message that God has sent to the world? And so he makes that pretty clear. He gets into Romans chapter 7, and we talk about why are we so struggling with sin if we're now Christians? And he explains that, and we dealt with that, and it was great. Then we got into chapter 8, and he began to describe the life in the Spirit, how that is the distinctive between Christianity and every other world religion. That is the essence of what a Christian is, someone who has trusted in Christ and had their sins washed away, and the Holy Spirit has come to dwell within them. So he talks in chapter 8 about the Holy Spirit. And then he describes in the middle of the chapter how we... The whole creation is, as I said earlier, groaning for redemption. We are groaning. That's why we feel the way we do so frequently. We're groaning for redemption. The Spirit even interceding on our behalf is groaning. And then he, then he breaks into that, but, but God has a plan for your life, and that is glory. You're going to share in his glory. One day you will be resurrected when Jesus returns in his resurrected body, and we will be just like him. And then he comes to that marvelous uh, sort of concluding part of Romans chapter 8, that nothing, I'm convinced, nothing, height nor depth nor uh, principalities or powers nor, nor life nor death, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Then what happens? Some people think chapter 9, verses 11 is just some rabbit trail. Paul went off on, oh, and he came back, and we should don't even need it. What we need is to go from chapter 8 right to chapter 12. But that's, I don't buy that for a moment. No manuscript evidence shows that anything happened other than something changed in Paul. Look at the end of Romans chapter 8. Now, we're going to read quickly through the first 13 verses, and then we'll get into our text. But come with me, look at the end of chapter 8, last verse, 39. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's the Apostle Paul. He has just written that he's got to be emotionally just peaked up here. Like, look at the benefits of being a Christian. Look at what God has done for you. Look at the certainty that you have of your salvation all the way to glorification forever and ever and ever. And he's just preached those benefits of being a Christian. And here's what I think. This is what the Lord, I believe, showed me as I was just meditating on that and reading it. And that is this. All of a sudden, I think something like this went on in the Apostle Paul. It was like, then what about the Jews? What what happened? They were the ones, as we studied last week, and we'll read it in a moment, they were the ones that were given the promises and the covenants. They were the people that God had chosen. And Messiah, they, they were there so that Jesus could be born, the Messiah could come into this people group and then launch the gospel from there into all, the entire world. What happened? How could they possibly have rejected Jesus when they lived so faithfully for all those hundreds and hundreds of years and all of a sudden Jesus is standing right in front of them and then they rejected him? How is that even possible? 
And then he writes chapter 9, not to cause an argument, which we argue about, not to cause division in the church. He writes this out of a broken heart for his own people, his family members, his loved ones, his friends. So let's look at, and I think it's just important to meditate on that, as we have been, of how hard it would have been for a Jew to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's like us accepting illegal immigration. It's like, wait a minute, I am a citizen. Um, I'm an American. And all of a sudden, they can just walk in and they're in. That, the Jew, it was oh, beyond our ability to comprehend, would have been in their very fiber of everything they had ever heard and lived and believed that we are the chosen people of God. And now you're trying to tell me that these Gentile dogs who worship pagan idols, all of a sudden, all they have to do is believe in Jesus. And they're the chosen people of God. It would have been incomprehensible. And it was to the Pharisees and Sadducees. So that's, now it shifts. Look at chapter 9. Paul's heart. I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have a great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were anathema from Christ, condemned. From Not just I'd give my life for them, I'd give my eternal salvation up if all of them could be saved for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises, whose are the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever, amen. So here, so stop there. So we studied last week. So what's Paul asking? What's he thinking? How is that possible? Did God fail? How, how can you even explain that? And this is the answer. It's going to bring us so much peace today. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are, now here's the explanation. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh. You're not born into it. It's not your pedigree who are children of God. But the children of promise are regarded as descendants. Whose promise? Well, this is the word of promise from God. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son against all natural ways of things functioning. Supernaturally, a miracle of God, by God's choice, at this time I will come next year and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac... For though the twins were not even born yet, they had not done anything, good or bad, in order that, this is a key part of the verse, watch this, in order that 
God's purpose according to his choice might stand because of, not because of works, anything we would do, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, this is my plan. The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I, chose, I, I hated. I chose Jacob. I rejected Esau. My choice. So it gets to that point. Now, that raises a question that Paul knows is coming. Every one of you has asked it. We're asking it today. You're going to ask it again as you read this text. You're going to ask this question. What are the first words that a two-year-old learns to say? Roughly. Mama. You say mama. You say dada. Uh, Pretty soon, mine. Before that, probably no. Okay, they're two years old. They don't understand. They learn for a few years. Now move ahead. You've got a parent with a seven-year-old child and a five-year-old child. And you let the seven-year-old child go to a birthday party. What does the five-year-old say now? They become legalists. We become legalists at five years old. Because they, now they have a sense of justice. There's, there, and what, what's, what do they say? It's not fair. When you read this passage, the human objection that Paul is anticipating, because every single one of us thinks it, and he deals with it, the human objection is, that's not fair. Okay? Well, of course, Paul is going to give us, number two, the divine perspective. So let's look at verse 14. What then shall we say? He knows exactly what you're thinking. There is no injustice with God, is there? That's a rhetorical question. Demands the answer, no. And he says, may it never be. It's impossible for God to be unfair. So the divine perspective, we say, that's not fair, God. The divine perspective is this. Yes, it is. It's, it's such a helpful illustration is the parent, the seven-year-old and the five-year-old. To, to me, it explains all this. The, the, in the parent's mind, it is fair. There's rites of passage. There's rules in your family. At seven, you get to go to birthday parties. At five, you don't. That's the way it is, but the five-year-old cannot understand that. To the five-year-old, wait a minute. You said you love me, and yet you won't let me go to the birthday party. This is what is going on the St. Louis Arches. In the forefront here is the truth taught in Scripture that God is absolutely sovereign. God is God, as we studied last week. God is God. You are not. Let God be God. God understands. Now, in the back there, that's the other truth, that we make our decisions. We are fully responsible. We are fully engaged. And you're going to see, we're going to study this question and then a whole other question like it next week. And that is, wait a minute, how is that fair that you made me, you made me the way I am, you steer the thoughts and the desires of my heart, you do everything, you're almighty God in control of everything, and yet I'm held responsible. How do those things, two, two things fit together? I have no idea. I don't know. That's up in the clouds. But God does know. I don't think it's fair. 
But yes, it is. Because God says so. Because in God's mind, he, he understands why it's all, he's doing it the way he's doing it. But we cannot possibly fathom all of it. We can't. And so, so given what we've already said, the human objection, that's not fair, God. The divine perspective is, yes, it is. Because I'm God. Okay, now he's going to give us four verses. He's going to give us a really uh, structured argument for the ground for what he has just said. Yes, it is fair. He cannot be unfair. And so look at verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. So we're asking the question, on what ground? And Paul begins to explain. Now look at verse 15. What, how does yours begin? It begins either with the word for or something that means that. Now look at 16. What, what, what words do you have there? So then, or maybe, therefore. I looked at all the different versions, but you got something that means that. So you have so then, now he's going to give us the, or I mean for, he's going to explain. This is the cause or the ground of what he just said. It is fair. Four. And then the so then in verse 16 is an inference. If that is true, then this follows. This is what that infers. Now look at verse 17. How does that begin? For, he does the same thing again. For, then how about verse 18? How does that begin? So then, or therefore, it's an inference. So he's going to give us two grounds and two inferences. So, What is he saying? Look at verse 15. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He's quoting from Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. You can look at that up later, and you can see the context of what's going on there. It's just so interesting. What's going on, Moses, the the Israelites have just done the golden calf thing. And so Moses gets all angry. He comes back to God and God says, I'm going to send an angel who's going to lead you in a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of a cloud by day, and I will be with you in my angel. And Moses, it, I don't know what all is going on, but he says, it's like that isn't quite good. He says, Lord, you have to be with us. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. And, and God says, I will show you my glory. And then he speaks these words. He says, I will have mercy on whom... What an answer. What, what do you even... Why would you say that? When he says, show me your glory. And God is about to. He puts him in the cleft of a rock, covers his eyes, and shows him his backside. That's all Moses can handle of God's glory. But before he does that, he says this. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. What an answer. What's God saying? I think what God is saying, he is declaring himself to be God and he's declaring that he is free to reveal his glory in whatever way he chooses to. And as you're going to see as we continue on, that's what's at stake here. How does God choose to reveal his glory to the rest of creation? How does he do that? And this is part of the answer. And so I've called this the divine initiative. Look at verse 16. So then, 
It does not depend on the man who wills. That word means to want something, to think, to desire something. It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. It does not depend on all your hard work, all of your effort. It's not, it's not dependent on your desire. But who is it dependent on? On God who has mercy. And that's an important thing we have to understand here. The divine initiative, back to verse 15, I will have letter A, mercy, on whom I have mercy, B, and I will have compassion, on whom I have compassion. Now that's important for me to stop here because I can get all excited preaching this and kind of like dogmatic. I don't think that's Paul's spirit here. That wasn't God's spirit when he revealed himself to Moses and said, Moses, so let's talk about mercy for just a moment. The Bible knowledge commentator uh, says, "As as the sovereign God, he has the right to show his mercy to whomever he chooses. In fact, he is not under obligation to extend mercy to everyone. So let's pause there and think about this for a moment. This is a sobering thought. We think that's not fair. He saved me. It doesn't look like he's saving them. And that's not fair, right? And we immediately jump to the judgment of God. Look at that. Look how mean God is. How could, how could a good God possibly send a good person to hell forever? How could he possibly do that? We're starting from the totally wrong place. That's not where Moses starts. It's not where God starts. It's not where Paul starts. Where does Paul start? Think of it this way. We should not be asking for fairness. What would fair be? I know you've all heard this argument, but we need to be reminded. What would fair be if Paul's already reminded us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? Everyone is dead in their sins. The whole earth is dead in their sins. If you want it to be fair, then God will just send all of us to hell. Right? That's not where it starts. This is not a display of God's meanness and God's judgment. The fact that God has chosen people out of death and saved them from their sins. Sent God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. That's mercy. That's compassion. The fact that I can stand here today and know for certain that I have all the benefits of chapter 8, that I am alive forever, that I'm going to receive a glorified body, I'll be glorified with Christ forever, is nothing but God's mercy and God's compassion. But we immediately say he's not fair. So, the second sobering statement here, I think, is that we don't deserve his mercy and we don't deserve his compassion. It's just God willfully choosing to show that to us. And we'll come back to that in just a little bit. In verse 17, now he'll start the second one of these little arguments. So then, or four, four, 
And we're going to find the divine purpose. Why, why did God do it this way? For the scripture says to Pharaoh, now this is a little side note, just it's, but it's important. Not, not, not the meaning of the passage, but just look how Paul talks. The scripture says to Pharaoh, if you go back to Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, what you'll see is that, God, that Moses is speaking to Pharaoh, and he says this, thus says the Lord. So it's really the Lord speaking to Pharaoh, but how does Paul describe it? The scripture speaks to Pharaoh. So all I'm saying is, in Paul's mind, the scripture, God, the spokesman for God, Moses, they're all the same. It's all the word of God. And that's why we read our Bibles every day. That's why we need to be in God's word. It is just that. It is God speaking to human beings. So that's just a side note. But look at verse 17. Let's see if we can follow the argument. For the scripture says to Pharaoh. Now, what do you think Pharaoh is thinking this whole time? Are you reading Exodus? Are you reading chapters 9, 10, 11 now? You, oh, praise God, you are. If you're not, go back and start reading it. Just start reading Exodus. If it takes you all year, read Exodus. You're reading through it. it. Every single thing we're going to be talking about today and in the weeks to come is found in Exodus. Okay, you'll see who God is. So what do you think Pharaoh thinks about himself? You know, the jigsaw puzzle of Pharaoh's reality, who's in the center of that puzzle? Him, just like the five-year-old or the two-year-old or you and me without Christ. We are at the center of our own jigsaw puzzle. Pharaoh thinks he is amazing. He thinks he is wonderful. He has all the power of the nation. After Joseph got through with the people, he owned everything. So Pharaoh, in his pride, thinks it's all about him. He deserves this. But this is what the Lord spoke to Pharaoh. This is so great. For this very purpose, I raised you up. Now, the word that raised you up is, to, is literally to make you stand. And it could mean, it probably could mean all this stuff. I created you. I put you on this stage, in this phase of history, in this position. I made you king of Egypt. I raised you up. It probably means that, but it also means something else. It, because literally the Hebrew word is, I, make, I made you stand. And I think what he's saying is, The reason I gave you ten plagues and not one plague, the reason I gave you ten warnings and I didn't destroy you after the first warning or long before is because I had a purpose for your life. I had a purpose for making you because I'm God. I'm the creator. I have a purpose that is being carried out. And you're going to see what it is in just a moment. That's exactly what he says to Pharaoh. Verse 17. Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I made you stand. Here's the reason. Watch this, letter A. To demonstrate his power. For this reason I raised you up. To demonstrate my power in you. And that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. 
to declare his name, letter B. So if you, ever, if you want to answer to the question, why did Pharaoh ever exist? This is the answer. For God to demonstrate his power and to declare his name. Huh, I wonder how that worked. Did that work very well? Well, let's look. Go with me now. If you're a Bible turner, go back to Exodus chapter 9. We're just going to look at four or five little passages that are pretty easy to get to. But look at Exodus chapter 9, verse 16 first. And you'll see the original thing, that the, the incident that Paul is quoting here. Exodus 9, verse 16. But indeed, for this cause... Well, back up just a little bit. 14. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people. Why? So that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence you would then have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this cause, I have allowed you to remain. I've I've been patient with your wickedness. Why? Because you're so good and you deserve it. God chose to do that for this reason. I've allowed you to remain in order that, in order to show you my power, and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Okay, did it work? Move ahead to chapter 14. Now this is the exodus itself. The parting of the seas. The exodus of God's people out of Egypt toward the promised land. Verse 29 of, of chapter 14. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea And the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. That's not fair. No, it isn't fair. It isn't isn't fair to the Israelites. They didn't deserve to be saved, but they were. God chose to show mercy upon them, compassion upon them. And they saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had, see, he displayed his power. When when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So Moses then, in response, writes the song that we have in chapter 15. Now go to chapter 15 and look at verses 13 through 18. This is part of what Moses, how he responds to the Exodus. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to the holy habitation. The peoples have heard, and what happens? What happens? Anybody following me? They tremble. They hear about what God did, and they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia, the the, the countries around them. The chiefs of Edom, they heard about it, his power. 
and they were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, your power, they are motionless as stone. And it just goes on and on. So it worked. God's plan worked. Would I have done it differently? Would you have done it a little bit differently? Well, if you're God, you've got that right. But that's how God did it. And, and it continues on. Let me show you just a few more examples of how. Now, we're in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. So go a few books ahead to Joshua, chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Rahab the harlot. Joshua is now taking the land. He's, he's going to eventually come and... Uh, they're going to conquer the entire land. Now listen to what Rahab says in Joshua 2, 10 and 11. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. They heard about the Exodus. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. God showing his, the right arm of his power. And when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, there's his name, his power and his name. He is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. Therefore, she appeals for them to have mercy on her. And then one more. In, well, in chapter 9, Joshua 9.9. 9. Go ahead to 9.9. 9. Now this is that... You know, the, the Old Testament just, if you want to learn to trust God as God and just let God be God, read the Old Testament. That Just weird things happen. Things that I would never have planned and don't think are really fair looking. So the Gibeonites, they, they deceive Joshua and you know they dress up like they've traveled a long distance so so that they'd sign a covenant with them and then but it turns out they're neighbors and and it was a just a big deception it was bad but look at verse 9 or verse 8 they said to Joshua we are your servants then Joshua said well, who are you where did you come from and they said to him your servants have come from a very far country why and why were they doing this whole deceptive thing because the fame of Yahweh your God, there's his name, the fame of Yahweh your God, for we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt. So God's plan was to do this marvelous thing in the, in the one more, one more. First Samuel, so Joshua judges Ruth, first Samuel. So go about four books ahead. 1 Samuel 4, 8. The Philistines and the Israelites are squaring off to fight. They defeat the Philistines. The Philistines defeat the Israelites initially. So the Israelites go and get the Ark of the Covenant, which is a sign of God's presence with them. So now they bring the Ark into their camp. And look at verse 8. Or verse 7. And the Philistines were afraid. For they said, 
God has come into their camp. And they said, woe to us. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us. Who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They don't understand very much about God, but they heard what the Israelites' God has done. These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plague in the wilderness. So my point is simply, this is what this is the way God planned it to happen, regardless of whether we think it's fair. And it worked. And you'll see in the Psalms, you'll see in the rest of the scriptures, in the prophets, they, the people of Israel go back. Stephen's testimony before he is stoned to death in the New Testament, what does he talk about? Being saved out of the land of Egypt, the mighty work of God, the mighty name of God. So that's how God chose to do it. And it worked. Uh, does that make sense to anybody? That's why you're here. That's why he has entrusted the gospel to us. That's why he has given us the spirit. We are his people. As Peter said, we are to proclaim his excellencies. We are the people now that are the, the, the seed of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham. We are now the ones on the earth to be doing what Joshua was doing, proclaiming his name. People look at they should look at us and see the gospel lived out and know it's true and know there's a there's a God in heaven. But we're not done yet. Now let's look at the so then. Let's look at the inference in verse 18, the divine will. God's will. Verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he desires. I think all of us maybe are a little more comfortable with that now after spending this time together. Uh oh. Now he's going to throw in something else. And he hardens whom he desires. He makes stubborn. He makes obstinate who he desires to. Ouch! That's going to raise another question that we'll deal with next week. But let's stop here for just a moment. The divine will is, letter A, to have mercy out of an entire humanity of sinners bound for eternal separation from God. Out of that, he is going to save, he is saving a remnant of people who are his people. That's us. His divine will is to have mercy and also to harden. Ooh, I don't like what that preacher just... I'm not saying it. I'm reading to you what verse 18 says. It's right there. We have to deal with it. Do we understand it? No. Can we put it all together? No. We're not smart enough. We're five-year-olds. We're five-year-olds who still think our picture is at the center of the puzzle. And it isn't. God's picture is at the center of the puzzle. So, now... Listen carefully. I'm going to wrap this up in just a few moments, in, in these next few moments. So listen to what I have to say, please. May the Holy Spirit use this now, whatever is of him, to encourage your heart, to accomplish the purpose he has for this passage in our church today, in your life today.
Romans is a letter to the church, the body of Jesus Christ on the earth, created to do his work of proclaiming God's excellencies, of displaying his glory. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Go do the good works. You are my workmanship, created for good works, which I have prepared beforehand for you to go and walk in. That's our job. He wrote this letter to that church to encourage them, to maintain and fought, not to cause division, the opposite. There was already division. He wrote, this is the answer to division. He wrote this to maintain and foster unity amid diversity. We have a church here that has Baptists, Assemblies of God, Catholics, Congregationalists, Methodists, Lutherans. We're all very diverse bunch of people. But God has brought us into this church together, and this letter can foster unity among us. But our thinking must begin and remain grounded in the truth about God, who he is, what he is like, what he is doing in us, for us, through us. This passage, and it's in keeping with all of Scripture, teaches us that. Now listen carefully. These are the big broad strokes. This passage teaches us that God is God. God is good. Might not seem like it, but he is. The Scripture teaches him to be good. So if you think he's, that isn't, you're misunderstanding something. And God is what? Going somewhere. He has a plan, a purpose that is unfolding in human history. And you and I are part of that plan right now today. And just as he raised up Pharaoh, as he put Pharaoh where he wanted him, and he put Moses there, and he gave him a speaker and Aaron, and, and he just is orchestrating all of those details. He's taking all the details of your life, and he's mixing it all together to make you look more like Jesus and to make you a, an effective proclaimer of his truth of his power, of his name. That's why you are here. So, let God be God. Trust him, because he is good, whether you understand it or not. God works in mysterious ways. And when his ways confuse us, and we begin to think he's not fair, he is. And when we start to think that he contradicts himself, he doesn't. And God can exercise his sovereignty in a way that does not... This is an important little phrase. God exercises his sovereignty in a way that does not violate any of his other attributes. He is just. He is fair. He is good. He is loving. He is merciful. He is compassionate. But he is a God of wrath against sin. He is a God of holiness. All of that is true. And sometimes they come together in a way that I don't quite understand. And that's okay. Trust him. Remain when you're in the fog. P-H-O-G. P-H-O-G. Remain prayerful. 
humble, open, gracious to each other. And this is what we need to do, real simple. Obey his clear commands. Go, make disciples, be salt, be light, do your job. He's got you here for that reason. He's got you right where he wants you. He's got all those details happening for his purposes. And if you will just do that, if we will do that, if we will just go now, obey his commands, love him, love others, enjoy his grace every moment, enjoy his guidance as you ask for wisdom, enjoy his protection, and enjoy his peace. This passage should give us peace. God is God. So will you bow your heads with me? And just meditate on this for a moment. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Thank him for his mercy and his compassion upon you. If you're not a believer today, his arms are open wide. Jesus has come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come to me.